0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Carlos Lalueza fox about the new book, Inequality, a Genetic History, how genomics reveals deep histories of inequality going back many thousands of years. Well, Carles, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you. Welcome.
0: So how are you? How was your week?
1: Um, I had an hectic week, I think, because uh, I have recently started as a director of the Museum of uh, Natural Sciences in Barcelona, which is quite a big institution, and I am still learning, uh, at least learning the names of all the people (laughs) in the museum and learning everything about the museum.
0: So can you
1: tell us, what do you do? What I usually do in research is um, I work retrieving ancient genomes from the past and analyzing these genomes, trying to reconstruct migrations, ancient migrations and changes in ancestry and also uh, changes in social structure related to these migrations. And, uh, uh, yeah, and that's it, essentially.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's uh, that's, uh, very impressive. (laughs) So how did you get interested in uh, working in this field? Um,
1: Yeah, I don't know. When I was a child, I was interested in history. Um, uh, But then, I don't know, uh, when I was young, I studied biology. uh, And then, after a while, I discovered that the emerging ancient DNA field that is uh, just 20-something years old, um, allowed me to put together this interest in the past with um, a biological focus, let's say. So uh, it's thanks to the the fact of being in the right moment, in the right place when this field was emerging.
0: Mm. And along your scientific journey in your career, did you have mentors that were very supportive of you?
1: Uh, yes, I mean, uh, the, the ancient DNA, I, 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 I probably the person who has collaborated with most researchers in the ancient DNA field is a field which is quite peculiar in the sense that because he's young, there are many strong characters in like, um, I don't know, Svante Pevo, um, Eske uh David Reich. Uh, I have been collaborating with, with uh, all of them i would say probably uh, uh, yeah, as i say that the person who has more papers with other people in the field because uh, i appreciate that this is a collaborative effort and also i am interested in collaborating with people that works in the past but they are not geneticists such as anthropologists uh, archaeologists or historians and, and I have, I would say, this view of the field as a, something that is essentially multidisciplinary and also that is essentially something that is um, in many ways fascinating.
0: And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers, for example, maybe joining this field?
1: Um, the field is, if it's is now. I mean, uh, if they have a fascination for understanding the past, for knowing things, and, and there are many subfields, let's say, not just reconstructing migrations, but how these uh, these uh, populations shifts in the past are uh, related to changes in uh, social structures or gender biases or uh, changes in language, for instance, which is uh, uh, entirely associated to many of these shifts, or also ancient pathogens. Because sometimes when you are sequencing the persons from the past, then you are also sequencing the pathogens they had, or the, path- the pathogens that killed them. Um, so, and also, of course, uh, domesticates. Uh, extinct species. I mean, this is an enormous field. So if you are a curious person, and you have this interest for understanding the past, but it's not for the past itself. And understanding how the present has been shaped by the past, I think is, a, is, a, is an interesting field for any uh, student.
0: So your book is called Inequality, a Genetic History, and what inspired you to write it?
1: Essentially, I, start, I started with my own research. Uh, but the idea is that I noticed um, these studies were providing not only information about how the ancestry of the populations has been changing uh, uh, you know, along history in different regions, but how these studies were allowing for the first time to understand how inequality has shaped the genomes of our modern populations. Um, Because there is a a clear link between wealth and biology. Essentially, the people in the past that had more wealth and more power, they were able to have more children uh, and allow their children to survive also. And, and then this has to have an, uh, an impact on the biology of the next generations to the point that we can um, say now that we are the product of this inequality, because uh, uh, essentially we have to, to be uh, in many ways descendants of the people that practice inequality in the past.
0: All right, so let's dive right into your book. And can we start with the very basics to make sure everybody knows what we're talking about? So, can you explain what exactly is genomics?
1: Um, Genomics uh, is the study of the genomes, of the human genomes. Paleogenomics is the retrieval and the analysis of the genomes from uh, people that lived uh, in the past. And these Genomics is, uh, carries information not only about the ancestry of the, of each person, but also uh, information about uh, medical issues, predisposition of health, um, phenotypical traits like hate, uh, pigmentation, uh, eye color, uh, etc. So is is uh, is uh, The starting of a very complex ramifications that you can study, as I say, from a population uh, point of view, but also from a biomedical point of view or even a phenotypical point of view.
0: So, what kind of methods and tools do you use?
1: Um, Well, all this comes from quite recent technical developments so that start in uh, just 12 years ago with new technologies that allow now to generate from a single uh, DNA extract, um, uh, literally billions of sequences of DNA that then you align to the human genome if you are working with humans. So essentially, now all, what we have is we extract a small sample of bone or tooth from a human remain. Uh, And we do just, uh, let's say, a a conventional extraction of nucleic acids. And then we send for sequencing in one of these um, new machines, the sequencing machines, these extracts and generate literally billions of sequences that then computationally we align to the human genome and start doing the analysis.
0: And how easy or difficult is it to work with ancient DNA?
1: Uh, well, it depends on many factors, because the DNA degrades um, a long time, essentially with um, influence by the thermal conditions of the, of the let's say, the site. Um, so the, the worst factor for DNA preservation is heat, um, so, but, but then it depends on, of course, of how old the remain is or if it's in a cave or, uh, you know, in the surface or it's uh, uh, in water or on, uh, also some other factors like acidity of the soil, etc. So it can go from more than 1 million years, uh, but this also ha- only happens in very um, special environments like, you know, the permafrost, um, to, uh, you know, literally nothing in very hot oh. environments, like uh, it could be, I don't know, uh, the, the Africa, I mean, in the desert, let's say.
0: And how would you go about sequencing and extracting Asian DNA?
1: Um, what do you mean? Uh, Is uh, 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 that kind of lab or...?
0: Would you would you need specific tissues like you mentioned ah. bone or? Yes. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, there is a whole range of tissues. Um, the, the best one is a, a specific region in the skull, which is called the, the, in the temporal bone. Uh, if not, you can try with the roots of the teeth. If not, you can try with uh, you know long bones. Uh, with a strong cortical uh, tissue, and then you can go down and down and, and ending up in, in kind of bones which are probably not suitable for DNA preservation. It depends a lot. It depends on many things. First, what do you have? May- maybe do you really just have a small bit of postcranial bone and then you cannot choose any other thing or maybe the curator uh, in a particular museum because the uh, skeleton is very palpable or is uh, unique, then only allows you to sample a small uh, piece of a bone, etc. So it, it really depends a lot. Um, but we are using now a very small amount of bone. So it's the, although the technique is destructive, um, we are. We can use now maybe twenty milligrams of bone. So in in fact, it's less. It's destructive. For instance, that the amount of bone you need for uh, radiocarbon dating.
0: Mm. So why would you use genomics to probe our past? What can it tell us? What other methods cannot?
1: Ah, well, it's very easy to put uh, just an example. For instance. Um, when we study skeletons, uh, depending on the robust, uh, robustity of the skeletons, we can some, you know, deduce the sex, which is a very basic information to know if we are dealing with a, with a man or a woman. Uh, but this is not always clear from the bones themselves. You know, so there are probably uh, mans, which are quite gracile, women, which are quite robust. And, and, and even that is not, I mean, this is the most basic information you can have from the skeleton, of course, trying to understand if that person is, a, 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 what was the, the sex of that person, the gender. And, and now with genetics, we know the genetic sex. So we can know to start, it right, is just the basic information to know if this, it has an X and Y chromosome and then it's a male or an X, uh, you know, two copies of X chromosome and then it's a female. And from here, we can know many, many things that were impossible to know, just looking at the archeology span or the anthropology, another another example. We know we are now finding the kinship relationship, the genealogical relationships within a single site where you can find who is the mother of who or who is the father of other people. And then you can reconstruct pedigrees. And this is just impossible. In any place, uh, just looking at the skeletons, there is no way you can really know if these two people, which are very close from mm-hmm. each other, are in fact the son and the father, for instance. And not only that, we are now start of finding uh, people who are family related, but they are not buried in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, we have an example which is still unpublished, where in uh, we have found a mother. And the, and, the sun. and the sun is buried 700 kilometers from the mother. As I say, this is absolutely impossible. I mean, it's a dream for any person uh, working in the past. And I can imagine the excitement of archaeologists that have been working all their lives guessing which could be, you know, the interpretation of this particular site, if I could know the genealogical relationship of the the people who are buried there. And now it's possible.
0: Oh, it's fascinating. So how do you use genomics to think and study inequality in the ancient societies?
1: Well, there are many ways. Um, I, I devote uh, each chapter to a different way, let's say. But for instance, one is very obvious and relates to what I've been talking. Okay. You have a particular site in a, any particular moment, let's say in the Bronze Age. And then in that site, there are people who are buried with, let's say, um, signs of wealth. They have gold, they have uh, pottery, you know, tigers, uh, weapons, whenever. And they are buried, uh, showing these signs of power, alongside people who is buried with nothing. Uh, so there, there is a clear stratification, a social stratification in this, in this, in this site, because of course this is an indication of what do you expect to get in the afterlife. And, and now we are in the situation that we can analyze the genome of these of these people. We can discover the, the the you know the how the wealth is trans, uh, transmitted in a particular site. Just uh, studying the genome of the people who is buried with lots of signs of wealth and the people who is buried with nothing essentially, and then we find, for instance, that uh, those that show wealth they have the wealth. Uh, inherited through the paternal lines, so they, they have um, they are uh, sons they, uh, of uh, fathers that were wealthy and the, uh, uh, at their time we find for instance that many of the women they are unrelated I mean they have children but they never have in the sight either uh, uh, parents, or brother or uh, sisters. So clearly the women in these sites where there is uh, this strong stratification and the bronze age I'm talking, uh, they came from other groups and they are in, in a, let's say, in a difficult social position uh, unless they have children within the club. Um, so this is one of the ways which I think is very understandable to study inequality with
0: genomics. Ah, so it's uh, sort of taken in the contexts uh, with archaeology and some other uh, studies like uh, carbon dating, for example, is it?
1: Yes, essentially archaeo- archaeology. But also we can uh, study inequality by looking at the modern populations hmm. and discovering how they have been shaped by inequality. And uh, the, I would say that the most obvious example that the American populations nowadays, it has been the mixing of three different ancestry, three main different ancestries: the European, the African, and the, let's say, the American, the Native American ancestry, in ways that are biased. And then when we study uh, these communities in all along uh, the Americas, we found signals of this bias, in the sense that, for instance, there are communities In Central and South America, where, when we look at the the Y chromosome, which is inherited from the paternal line, we discover that the community, 100% of the Y chromosomes are European in origin. When we look at the mitochondrial DNA, which is inherited through the maternal line in the same individuals, we discover that sometimes 100% of them are Native American. So that clearly means that the population has been shaped by inequality in the past, essentially with uh, um, European males um, and Native American uh, women. And then what is more interesting is, of course, there is a story of social dominance here that we uh, also know from history. But what is interesting is that this can also be extrapolated to uh, populations in North America when we find, for instance, the um, Black American community, they carry, on average, 24% of European genes, and most of them also have white chromosomes which are European. And they are uh, still considered African-Americans because the genes go from the European community to the, uh, let's say, African community, Afro-American community, but they don't go the other way, the the other way back.
0: So can you use this uh, technology and these um, approaches to study migrations of the ancient societies?
1: Yes, I mean, in fact, the most obvious thing is to reconstruct past migrations. Uh, um, this was, let's say, the first goal of the paleogenomics when they was established with the new technologies was trying to understand how past migrations has, has shaped the, uh, the genetic distribution of modern populations. Um, what is interesting of the past migrations associated to inequality is that they are, uh, they are a, a opportunity for inequality. Uh, not always, but uh, these fast migrations sometimes they are clearly gender biased uh, in the sense that we can uh, trace that the, the you know the, most of the migrants are, for instance, males, and then they marry. I mean, they mix with local women, etc. So the, uh, the, the 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 association with inequalities. At least there is a, an opportunity for, it, for inequality to happen when the genetic change is uh, large.
0: Is it possible to know whether these migrations uh, are forced or voluntary?
1: Yeah, uh, it depends. I think it's quite variable. Uh, Of course, the most obvious migration is the spread of agriculture that um, Mm. develops uh, if we are talking about Europe. And uh, you know the Near East ten thousand years ago, and then the, the the people start pouring into Europe, carrying their own ancestry, and in some places replacing the previous hunter gatherer ancestry. In other places, mixing with the hunter gatherers, uh, and then there are other migrations that happens um, across history. Some of them, I would say that the, the migrations are sometimes triggered by um, new technologies like the horse domestication, sometimes new weapons, sometimes both things. Um, in, in the case of the agriculture, of course, the, the possibility of uh, cultivating and producing um plants, crops, and also having domestic animals. In general, when inequality happens is because there is some dominance. So the the migrants are either, um, let's say, they have a new technology or they have a, um, a new weapon. So it's, uh, let's say, novelty over traditional societies, probably the impact, uh, that the stronger impact in, in terms of inequality.
0: And how has the ethnic composition and mixing of the different um, ethnical backgrounds contribute to the inequality?
1: Um, yeah, so we, we have to imagine, we have to imagine the ancestry of modern populations as a kind of layers, uh, unless there is a complete replacement, which is rare. Uh, let's imagine that every time that the migration happens, then you, you get um, this new layer of ancestry. So the original layer gets lower, let's say, and then it's like a cake. <laughs> so depending on the number of migrations, you have layers of a cake. And then this shapes the composition of modern um, populations. And of course, um, yeah, I don't know if this a, a possible thought would be that to know that some of these layers have practiced inequality in the past and then, and then you, you have this ancestry in your genomes. In fact, as I mentioned before, the likelihood is that the people who had practiced inequality in the past, it is more likely to be some of your ancestors. Um, uh, so there is this I don't know at the personal level probably is kind of um difficult to understand uh,
0: And within sort of one population, how did it impact the social order and sort of stratification of the society?
1: Yeah, there are some signals of uh, strong social stratification associated to some of this migration, I guess the paradigm is in, in, in India, where we are now finding evidence of um, people what, with what we call a step ancestry, people that came from the steppes of Central Asia, that has a, an ancestry which is very distinct to the ancestry that is before in India. And at the time this happened, uh, more than 3,000 years ago, what probably occurs is they established a very strong social stratification. Of course, they put themselves in the top layer. It wouldn't make sense. You know, if you create a stratification, you put them in the lower. And, and this is shaped, and a long time, it, it, it becomes the, the caste system that is now, let's say, Illegal, but it's still very strong in the Indian societies, and we can so we can study the the, the population either geographically or uh, by social layers, and then we found this step ancestry, which is you know more dominant in the upper layers of the society and almost nothing in the lower layers. So this again is interesting because relates. Um, culture, biology, and also uh, social structure, and it's very persistent, it's incredibly strong, even now that it doesn't, you know, has any legal support, but it is still uh, going strong because uh, in some of the statistics uh, the government has published recently, uh, in some regions, more than 90% of the marriages take place within your um, caste. So you don't, you don't marry outside the caste. So, it, so the, the, the thing goes on and on after hundreds of years. To so the point that if we now uh, make an ideal population where there are no layers of society and everyone mixes at random, it will take, about, you know, several hundreds of years to have this ancestry diluted to, uh, you know, share at the same level across all the population. So I think it's very interesting to see the persistence of these uh, social structures.
0: Yeah, this is really fascinating because we had just several hundreds of years, didn't we? (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. But the other interesting thing is uh, this is an extreme example But there are, um, let's say, there are hints that the stratification also operates in Western societies where we think they are much more egalitarian. But there are studies that basically looking at the surnames, at the surnames of the nobility several hundred years ago, and now just the surnames of the common population. Uh, and looking correlating the surnames and the income, uh, it always in many Western societies, including the, you know Sweden, Great Britain, etc. When you look at that, the surnames that built, that were from the nobility, hundreds of years ago, they still have higher income than the the average of the society.
0: So then what are some of the reasons that inequality emerged and was maintained throughout our history?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it probably exists but uh, from the beginning, but it's much more difficult. Uh, I mean, at least it's attenuated, let's say, or um, ex- exists in a, diff- in a different way in hunter-gathered societies, where you cannot really accumulate. Much wealth because you have to transport it constantly. So the first thing you need is that it became sedentary. Well, you can you can stay you know in the place to accumulate wealth, but also you have to create a kind of surplus. And this happens with the emergence of the agriculture, where you can have a surplus of let's say crops. You can have uh, more and more land, um, and this create, I would say, this the, the starting point of the inequality. But clearly, when we look at the, at the genomes of the past, there is a boost of inequality in the Bronze Age societies, at least in Cairo. So around uh, 4,000 years ago, between 4,000 and 5,000, what happens is that society becomes much more stratified and then there is the emergence of the elites, and these elites, they clearly can accumulate much more wealth and they can uh, transmit the wealth to their offspring. So there is an inheritance of wealth that then you know, relates again to biology. So, so is uh, uh, the turning point, I would say, the Bronze Age.
0: Are there any examples of equal societies throughout our history?
1: Um, well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, of course, I guess uh, we should probably go to, to the foragers that still exist in some places in the world, which are... but. but I'm not sure, I mean, uh, they are, some of them, they have aggression also, they have conflicts. Um, And so uh, this is another thing. I think there is a a tendency to aggression in not only humans, but in in many primate societies. And then this is also the base for um, subsequent inequality. Um, So I'm not sure if... uh, equal societies are possible in many ways. Uh, equal societies, they have been, I talk about, uh, about these possibility in the book, also in a chapter, because they have been imagined, let's say, um, in, in, uh, in literature um, through utopias. And so the people have been concerned about inequality, uh, for for thousands of years, because it starts the first utopia starts with Plato, and and then they have been imagining these ideal societies where everyone will be equal and happy. Let's say when these societies they have been implemented with the utopic uh, socialism in the nineteenth century in some places uh, again, notably in the Americas, because. You know, it was the, the new world, and it, it seemed you could do something new there. Uh, they all failed. They all failed, it, even if this was a rational planning of a society that was going to be equal. Yeah, everyone was going to be happy. And maybe is, let's say, maybe it's impossible to be happy <laughs> in many, in human in, in, in societies as a pace.
0: So how did inequality sort of evolve during uh, our sort of closer history after the Bronze Age?
1: Um, Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, of course, there are many examples of incredible wealthy people with hundreds of uh, children, literally described in in history, I don't know, uh, pharaohs in Egypt, or um, very recently I don't know Sultan's uh, Ottoman Sultans or I don't know the, the Sultan of I don't know where where you know or the king of uh, Swaziland that maybe have 100 children and so on which um so there are many examples of uh, extreme inequality where everything every you know just few people have everything um and now this can be, in the last hundreds of years, this can be studied by checking the taxing, uh, at least in Western societies, where, you know, then that, that you can see who is owning what. Um, and then there are some researchers, that's, uh, these are economists, let's say, um, who claim that Western societies are now much more unequal that they have been in the past. So the, because uh, some of the figures are all incredible in the sense that maybe, I don't know, three people in the world own as much as uh, half the humankind, you know, so maybe three, four, 10 people, they have the same wealth as um, two, two or three billion people together. Uh, and of course, this is up to this level, they probably didn't happen in, in the past. And this is, of course, a concern, um, not only for economists, but a social concern, because in the past, when societies have been at some point extreme and equal, they have become also very unstable.
0: So now thinking about the contemporary societies, how are genomics used to study inequality in, the, in our world now?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, the genetics, let's say if you study now genetics, uh, you are projecting to the past, um, but this will continue uh, in, in the future. Uh, if, Wealthy people, for instance, tend to um, mate uh, among them, which is what we call assortative mating. These will create genetic differences that will go on and on and in the future. and the, the geneticists in 500 years if we, if we are still here, then we will see the signal of inequality is still, you know, uh, changing. Uh, Probably, but shaping still the genomes of the future societies. So um, the genomics kind of study inequality uh, looking at the past, but in fact inequality is something that will continue shaping human populations.
0: Hmm. And how do reproductive technologies and something like genetic testing, IVF, contribute to maintenance of inequality?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there, are many, there are many things that can, that can be operating now in a new level, for instance, gene editing. Of mm. course, wealthy people is very concerned with the idea of dying, like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> and they are, you know, uh, funding all these initiatives to try to uh, live longer or, you know, maybe forever. Um, so clearly there are new steps in genetics and inequality that didn't exist in the past and maybe will operate in the future. But uh, in my view, the most strong mechanism is this assortative making. Um, some generations ago, uh, there was uh, less structure than that. So that the people, uh, some wealthy people would marry, uh, people less wealthy in the society. And this has been now more structured according to new studies. So the people, is it has clearly tending to marry and have children, of course, with a um, person of the same educational level and similar income. And this is quite new. This has happened in the last two or three generations, for instance, in the United States. Mm. And of course, this, this is a mechanism that is slow, but it's very strong also.
0: And how concerned are you about the bottlenecks of population? For example, thinking about secluded populations, maybe like Iceland, or even thinking about the monarchs in Europe where they have very high levels of inbreeding.
1: Yeah, that's that's another interesting thing. Um, we also, are able to study now in paleogenetics, the, the level of inbreeding. And then we see in some of these communities that have been subjected to migration, some of them, the, the inbreeding increases as a reaction, probably, at least in the first moment, to this arrival of foreign people. So this is the thing that didn't mention, but it's also possible to see the, um, the level of inbreeding, which is very strong in some ancient populations and small communities. We have uh, been studying in the Mediterranean, in Greek times, in Punic times, people that really tend to marry and it has a very strong signal of inbreeding and tend to marry, but just with cousins and, and just keeping probably mm-hmm. their own identity um, as um, as a defensive for, uh, the, uh, against what we can imagine was the globalization at that time. And this can also happen in modern societies, although globalization after the pandemics is not as clear as before. It's unclear if globalization has you know, started declining. Um, some people claim some years ago that globalization was going to be a uniformizing mechanism in in genetics, there is the reaction of, uh, you know, fighting against globalization, increasing Mm. the uh, endogamy in your communities as a reaction. So, yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, And again, it could happen not in physically isolated populations, but in communities that want to keep their own cultural identity. So you don't need to be an island to become more endogamous
0: and what lessons can we learn from our history
1: <laughs> i think we learn we learn, uh, we learn a long story of suffering and you know and uh, and sorrow i'm sure i mean some there were probably some love stories in these interactions but clearly there were many stories of power and dominance and people who Simply, some of them, some people couldn't survive, but many people couldn't have children at all because uh, others were having, you know, much more, uh, many more children than them, or uh, simply um, uh, monopolizing all the women. And the women is another uh, fraction of the society that really has been. Um, in a long story of discrimination and, and suffering. Um, and this can be this can be studied now, as I say, entirely in a space and time. Uh, but on the other hand, the, you know the, 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 the society survive, let's say, and we are here talking about this story of inequality and discrimination, which is our own story. I think this can be a positive message.
0: And looking at uh, what we see in the world today, where are we heading in the future in terms of inequality?
1: Um, I think it will continually <laughs> increase. And this, uh, like I say, this is a concern because every time the historians or economists have been looking at moments of increase, continuous increase and extreme inequality, this has led to some uh, serious instability because at the end it's impossible to keep uh, the society under these circumstances. And and in moments where crises are coming, such as the climate change, for instance, um, the combination of rampant inequality as we have and this coming crisis, I think is uh, you know, it can, it can, it can be a, a serious danger for the structure of the society.
0: And where would you want to see us head in the future?
1: Um, <laughs> well, I mean, ideally, uh, I, I would like to see a kind of control of the as you know of the inequality I don't know it's just uh, how, how this can be done I, I just um, I don't have any, any answer of course some people have been arguing about uh, you know, increasing taxes etc but I think it eventually will happen because we'll have to face um, new challenges probably associated to many things that will probably happen in the future and then inequality will be one Of these challenges. Um, But I would like to to be able to, let's say, talk about these things and plan these things rationally before it is too late.
0: Yeah, and a very interesting thing you pointed out earlier that um, we indeed never had societies that were truly utopian. We dreamt about them, but uh, in practice it's really difficult to achieve. So do you think we, we had some sort of societies that were sustainable and with a lower levels inequality throughout our history?
1: Yeah, I mean, clearly we had because, uh, you know, the levels of inequality, in mean, it's probably, a, it's, it's impossible to compare any society with the past society it wouldn't make any sense because we have now internet, we have uh, you know, people who owns uh, Twitter and, I don't know, <laughs> WhatsApp and things that didn't exist. So any comparison is, uh, is impossible. Um, but uh, even societies that were perceived as extremely unequal in the past, they, uh, they, they, our society is probably much more unequal now than, than these past uh, societies. Um, but then I am not advocating for, you know, going back to the hunter-gatherers, something like that. Of course, it's something that is new. It's something that has to be shaped and it has to be worked out. And, um, and, and I think we have also some advantages as societies that we didn't have in the past, like the possibility, as I say, of being talking about that.
0: I'm thinking about the bigger picture, so are you optimistic that our society will be able to achieve more equitable set of, uh, you know, order in the world?
1: (laughs) I am optimistic because I have children and then I have to be optimistic in many ways. Um, I think we are still in time of facing not only social uh, challenges, but also uh, ecological challenges. Um, Because as I said, although we are facing uh, big problems ahead, we also have tools that we didn't have in the past. Even the idea of humankind working together is not really as old as we might think. It's just an idea that maybe associated to the United Nations we maybe have is only, I don't know, 50 years old or something like that. So uh, everything is changing, and everything is still possible in my view.
0: And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, Inequality, surprised you the most?
1: Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, just the perception that this was possible to study. Uh, This was partially, I have to say, um, triggered by the studies I was doing uh, many times in collaboration with David Reich in from Harvard University, and he also wrote the book um, about this emerging field, which is main, mainly focused on the analysis of ancient migrations. But also, um, he has a small section in his book about the possibility of studying uh, also the history of inequality. And talking to him and collaborating with him, this was uh, something that you know, trigger these ideas to be um, put in a book. But but what really happens to me is that uh, I was in lockdown during the first um, outbreak of the COVID pandemics in 2020. And then I I was locked at home and then Mm. I put together these ideas in a book. Uh, So probably if I didn't have the, the, you know, the lockdown, that in Spain lasts for, I don't know, four months or something like that. I couldn't find the time to put these ideas together.
0: And you yourself, do you have your genome sequenced? Have you tried tracing your ancestry? Uh,
1: Yes, uh, (laughs) I tried one of these commercial companies, I I will not say the name. because, well, first uh, I had it because uh, with my wife, when we were planning to have children, we wanted to know if we had some, let's say, mm, mutation that could be a problem, you know. Um, and then I have my background, I know my background died quite well, although it's quite, you know, unusual for Spain because I had a grandfather who was English, mm-hmm. although he died before um, I was born. Um, um, and then the company uh, detected that I am 25% British, which, which is uh, interesting. Uh, and then they detected, for instance that I could have an, uh, an ancestor in Italy around the mid18th uh, century, which is interesting because at the same time it's too far away to have uh, you know family history on that. But they seem to be quite sure about that. So um, it's interesting. And again, I think it shows the idea that uh, everyone is a mosaic. Every population is a mosaic of different layers of ancestry, as I say. But every person is also a, a mosaic. It's very strange that you could have all your, I don't know, four grandfathers, eight great grandfathers, et cetera, uh, from the same population across hundreds of years. And if you go th- you know, back in time, then you start finding these connections with other places to the point that you can really say that you are connected to everyone if you go back in time enough. You know. hmm.
0: Were you curious to find out whether you were, I don't know, sensitive to caffeine or something like this?
1: <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I had this. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I, I knew some of them, of course, I, I for instance, I am quite intolerant to lactose. Uh, I am half-half, I have a a copy of the mutation so I can digest some milk, which probably comes from my grandfather because in England, this is almost fixed as a mutation, but not so in the the south of Europe. Uh, And then, yeah, there's a whole list of, let's say, curiosities. But uh, probably the the, the most interesting list is is associated to health issues, of course. um, and I have, a, you know, I, I, I have hypertension, and of course, uh, in my genome, there is a, a, a risk for hypertension, which mm. I knew <laughs> in, in advance.
0: Well, this has been a truly insightful discussion. So what are you working on now? And what will be your next project?
1: Yes, um, um, I am trying to get out of humans in, in many ways, because uh, we are getting close to the present times, I have uh, literally hundreds of genomes which are still unpublished, most of them from the last hundreds of years, and this will be very interesting. We have found some really amazing things still associated to new migrations and so on. But I am trying to study now extinct species because I am more concerned about the crisis of diversity, and I would like to not only retrieve genomes of species which are um, extinct now or ancient genomes of the species which are now endangered. Uh, but also would like to explore the possibility of changing some genes in modern species which are in critically endangered to make them more able to survive, for instance, to climate change. Because some species can adapt, but the climate change is going to so fast. Um Now that I think one possibility would be to tweak some genes that allow some species to adapt much faster to this uh climate change and then survive so this uh this of course is a long term project, but this uh, is I don't know the thing that I would like to explore in the next years if I can.
0: Oh wow, sounds very exciting. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's it. Yes, yeah. again, this, this is thanks to the new technologies that didn't exist for the possibility of the CRISPR that uh, the I don't know, 10 years ago and the possibility of doing this kind of uh, thing. So uh, uh, technologies can also help us in conservation issues. It's not the question of just protecting in a zoo the last, um, you know, uh, specimen of a, even a species, but trying to make them help survive and adapt is, is, I think, is a responsible and active way of fighting uh, against uh, the biodiversity crisis.
0: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Uh,
1: Well, reading the book, (laughs) I guess. I don't know, is is uh, is any other thing... um, comparable. Um, there are other books on, of, on inequality in the past, for instance, Thomas Piketty had the, these books on uh, inequality from the economical point of view, the famous one that was published um, some years ago, uh, Capitalism in the 21th Century. Um, there are books about the the inheritance of wealth, as I mentioned, associated to surnames. Uh, so inequality. The funny thing is, it can be studied from many different angles. Not only the genetics, which links several of these disciplines, like you know genetics, archaeology, history, etc., but also it can be studied, of course, from an economic point of view, from uh, studies related to. Um, uh social structures surnames etc so i think that people should try to grasp um, these different angles to try to understand the, uh, the, the the problem
0: and your book inequality where is it available to uh, get for example is it available on in the smaller booksellers or on the big sellers online
1: um i, I have no idea really the, the big sellers online is what the people is now using, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. At least uh, myself, I was buying books uh, online in the last two years. Um, but uh, I guess it can be uh, found, especially in right now in in North American uh, shops in Canada. I know also in Great Britain. And uh, there is a translation to Spanish that will be published uh, early next year also. So uh, then it will be available in in many uh, um, bookstores in Spain, but also in South America, I hope.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: (laughs) Thanks to you for your questions and your time.